wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you all probably realize this, but Shiner is very blessed to have John Fletcher as a preacher. And part of my job today is to make you realize how blessed you are. (laughs) Because I'm a better writer than I am a speaker, but I hope you can get something out of this as well. Um, Now, some of you, many of you may not even know who I am. Sorry, I'm making noise here. Um... Because I usually come in around, oh, 10.57, 10.58, and do an important job, which is keeping those back pews from just flying off and, and rolling into the parking lot. <clears throat> but I've been here about a year now, and um, let me tell you how I came here, because there's not that many people that make the trek from Washington, D.C. to Lavaca County. But I was raised near Texarkana, a small little town, even smaller than Shiner, called Queen City. Grew up in the Methodist Church there. And went off to Texas A&M. I'm a happy but exhausted Aggie today after that game yesterday. Uh, some of you watched it. Went to the University of, University of Texas for law school and then went up to uh, D.C. and worked as a natural resources attorney at the Department of the Interior. Did that about 11 years and was also active in something called the Christian Creation Care Movement, which is essentially Christian environmental stewardship. How do we take care of the earth that God has given us? Well, after 11 years of being in the bureaucracy, it can wear you down a bit. And we Texans like Texas, so I was looking for a change. Um, On my mom's side of the family, we have roots that go back to a little farmhouse just down the road, almost to Hallettsville. And uh, it had just been sitting there, nobody using it for a while. I want to do some writing. That seemed like a nice place to write from. And so I've been out there in the farmhouse for about the last year now, uh, working on uh, what will hopefully become a book on Christian environmental stewardship. So it was very kind of John to to ask me to come and speak a little bit about that. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had a very moving, color-coded Sunday with the, with a pink Sunday in, in honor of cancer awareness. And you might call this Green Sunday. Now, a few of you got the memo. They didn't actually go out, but I see a few green shirts around as well. And I've I've worn my tie. Um, But as I mentioned, there are lots of people in, uh, well, as I mentioned, I worked in D.C. And now there are lots of good, hardworking people there. But at the same time, there is a reason for the saying that you may have heard, good enough for government work. You know what I'm saying? There's a reason that means what it means. Another thing that I would hear from time to time while in D.C. was a problem transferred is as good as a problem solved. <clears throat> now, now that's a that's a fairly fancy way of saying not my job. I don't want to deal with it. Send it to somebody else. Now, at times, not my job is a pretty valid response. If you're not a surgeon, please put down the scalpel. But when we punt on legitimate legitimate responsibilities, we can start to look a bit silly. 
Now, you may have seen this next one kicking around on the Internet for a while. Can we go to the first slide? I'll let you just sort of take this in a little bit. But what we've got, we've got a Cracker Jack road crew that has, they painted the possum. And you know what? They weren't done yet. Let's go to the next slide. There was more work to be done. That, that's a big branch. You, you don't want to get down and have to deal with that. <clears throat> All in a day's work for, uh, for these guys. <clears throat> now, these people did part of what they were supposed to do. But do you really think that their boss is going to look at them and say, good job, way to go, well done, good and faithful civil servant? No, not going to happen. So my question for us is, what is our job? What is a Christian supposed to actually do? Now, first, let me make it clear that I'm not about to make a case for a sort of works righteousness where we pile up enough brownie points and then God maybe finally starts to like us. You know your Bible's better than that. But I'll just remind us from Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. Apostle Paul tells us, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not the results of works, so that no one may boast. But we need to keep reading. The next verse says, For we are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. Doing good. That's our job. Well, what exactly does that mean? What are the job duties? Now, of course, a lot of things go on that list. Ten Commandments aren't just thou shalt nots. We're called to honor our parents. We're called to honor the Sabbath. And we could go around the room and I think plenty of legitimate answers like caring for the poor, spreading the good news, um, and loving our neighbors would come to mind. But frankly, caring for the natural world that God created doesn't always pop up. Many of the average American Christians would kind of look at the folks who are doing some of that stuff, tree huggers and the like, and they say, you know what, that's most definitely not my job. Well, should it be? To answer that question, the Bible is always a pretty good place to start. And when you start there, you don't have to look very far. It's on the first page. We heard it, uh, we heard it read so well today already. But here's the key line again. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Now, too often humanity has used this grant of dominion or rule as sort of a license for domination, exploitation, where we think the earth is just here to serve us. I think that's a severe and selfish misreading of the scripture. Think of it this way. We just had an election. We've sent people off to Austin and Washington, D.C. to have dominion over us, to rule us. Sadly, it may turn out this way, but it's not our expectation that they go off and serve their narrow self-interest. We've given them dominion over us in the hope that they will serve the common good, do what's best for the entire nation. 
So dominion doesn't have to mean just exploiting. And if you keep reading, even as we heard today, in the original grant, dominion didn't even mean that we could eat the animals. That came later. But God, God lists the menu and meat's not on it. I have a friend of mine who uh, is the head of a organization called the uh, called Restoring Eden, and they have a bumper sticker that says, "God's original plan was to hang out with some naked vegetarians." <laughs> <clears throat> now I'm I like barbecue too much <clears throat> to put that on my car, but there is a point there, and I and I. Not going into the, the meat thing, I, I say I eat barbecue, I love steak, but um, when you think about what dominion meant at the first, it didn't even mean that. You keep flipping over a little bit more into Genesis and we see the story of the Garden of Eden. And we have God putting Adam into the garden and telling him to till it and to keep it. Other translations say work it and take care of it. So this tells us a couple of things. First, humanity's first job, taking care of the earth, was not the result of sin, wasn't the result of the fall. It was something we had been given to do before sin even entered the picture. And it is work. We're called to be creative. We are called to interact with and change the natural world in some ways. So our call is not completely hands off. Don't touch it. But when we put our hands on it, we are to do it in a way that takes care of it and maintains its essential goodness. Now, you know the next chapter. The story tells us that Adam put his hand on something else and sin entered the world. And because of that, the earth itself has felt the impacts. God tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. And really, after those first three chapters, you see hundreds of pages in the Bible then that are God, that is God working out a redemptive plan to redeem and make right what was wrong in that fall in the garden. And the Apostle Paul gives us an amazing and underappreciated account of just what Jesus did when he culminated that in his death and resurrection. Paul first takes us back to the time of Genesis and speaking of Jesus tells us that all things have been created through him and by him. Jesus as creator. Then Paul says something amazing. He says that through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. So Jesus, who created all things, who sustains all things, reconciles all things. All of creation is impacted by the cross. And just in case we still haven't gotten it, Paul says that this is good news that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. And we see the same idea in one of the most popular verses in the Bible, one that many of us have probably memorized, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And the Greek word that gets translated world is cosmos. That seems to indicate that there's something more than just you and me at work here. Jesus died and rose for more than just us. He's reconciling all of creation and he calls us to be ambassadors of that reconciliation. 
And that's the point of what we heard in Romans 8 that was read. Here's again the key line. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. Some commentators describe this as nature waiting on tiptoe. Waiting for Christians to act like Christ. Now, the moaning of creation will not stop completely until Jesus comes again. But Martin Luther, you know who I'm talking about, the guy who started the Protestant Reformation about 500 years ago. He was once asked what he would do if he knew that Christ was coming tomorrow. His rather interesting answer was plant a tree. Plant a tree. And that may sound a bit odd because we've had a few decades of being told within the Christian pop subculture that the end times are really about not being left behind. As though the earth was was the Titanic about to go down and you don't want to be on that ship. That's not what the church has taught for most of its history. That's not really biblical. Here in that Romans 8 passage, we have Paul saying that the creation is headed for liberation. New creation. It's not headed for obliteration or destruction. Now, there's a person named N.T. Wright. You may have heard of or you may not have, but he's a he's a former Anglican bishop and he's a prolific New Testament scholar. It's probably correct to say that there's no one on the planet right now who knows more about Paul than N.T. Wright. And. He had this to say in an article, uh, an essay that picked up on Luther's theme. It was called Jesus is coming, plant a tree. And there Wright describes the Romans 8 uh, passage that we heard as the climax of Paul's doctrine of salvation through Jesus Christ. In short, as N.T. Wright puts it, when humans are put right, creation will be put right. And Wright explains that the work we do now in this post-resurrection but pre-second coming time will not be in vain. That's why Luther wanted to plant that tree. There's a continuation. There's a connection. And here Wright is in agreement with Francis Schaeffer. He's one of the most important evangelical figures of the 20th century. An intellectual inspiration for the religious right. He wrote a book that not everybody reads these days, but it's worth reading. It's called Pollution and the Death of Man. And he had this to say, that the blood of the lamb will redeem man and nature together. But Christians who believe the Bible are not simply called to say that one day there will be healing, but that by God's grace, upon the basis of the work of Christ, substantial healing can be a reality here and now. As you can tell, I like like this theology I like talking about it. I could keep doing that for a while. But to sum it up, let me put it this way. Caring for creation, helping it all flourish, people, plants, animals. Yeah, that's our job. That's part of what we are supposed to do. So switch gears a little bit. How are we doing at that job? Unfortunately, maybe not that well. We're stuck in a culture now that defines the good life by how much we consume. In fact, we're called consumers now more than we're called citizens, if you stop to think about it. We refer to our cities more and more as markets. San Antonio is a small market. 
New York is a major market. We are what we buy. And as with our other uh, era's great obsession, we have divorced the pleasure from the responsibilities that would attach to it. Our culture seeks sex without fidelity and material consumption without stewardship. Of course, materialism never fully satisfies, and so the cycle continues. We just need more and more and more to the point where we now demand a near constant stream of instant gratification. It all adds up to us requiring more from the earth than any society ever has. Now, as I mentioned, I, I worked in D.C., and there's a library at the Department of the Interior. And I was walking through it one day and saw something that, that literally stopped me in my tracks. Um, and that's on the next slide, if we could go to it. So this is from a, a trade magazine called Paydirt. It's uh, from the mining industry. And this was the cover. And we don't really think about how much we, we use from the natural world. It's a lot. Now, I take some issue with this because they say every American born will need all of this, will need 3.7 million pounds of minerals, metals, and fuels. Well, our ancestors lived pretty well, and they had a much smaller footprint. I don't know if we need this, but right now we want it. We want it, and that's what we're using. So let's look at some of these. We've got... And almost 6,000 pounds of aluminum for all the Coke cans and our share of the airplanes that we fly on and the cars we ride in. We've got uh, 83,000 gallons of petroleum that we, each one of us will, will use in, in a lifetime or will be used for us to bring things to us or to drive us around. These are massive, massive numbers. <coughs> We're using a lot of stuff. One I want to focus on is one of the biggest numbers, 588,000 pounds of coal for each man, woman, and child over a lifetime. Now, most of that is used to create electricity. Now, electricity can do a lot of good things, but um, there's a price to be paid for that, and maybe we're paying too high of a price. A lot of that coal comes from a process called mountaintop removal mining which is just what it sounds like. You literally take down a mountain to get to the coal beneath it. Every day in the Appalachian Mountains of the East, over 3 million pounds of explosives are used on a daily basis to blow up the mountains just for that process. So here's what it looks like. Go to the next slide. That's what you're left with after a mountain that God had put there that's been beautiful, that provides streams and wood and, and all sorts of products for the people. And it's not an exaggeration. There are 500 mountains that used to be there that are no longer there. And this is part of the cost of what we demand from the earth. And part of the problem is we don't know about this. We don't know what we're asking of the earth. <clears throat> and plenty of forces are happy to provide it for us and keep us ignorant. And this is just one of many problems that the creation faces. Um, and frankly, as one who starts started to find out more and more about the problems, it can get a bit depressing. And you see a lot of that in the environmental movement. 
that are big problems and the things that you can do personally seem so small. A little bit of recycling here, buy a fuel-efficient car, switch to renewable energy, flip off the lights. seems small and insignificant. It can feel a bit like that you are having to face something like this. Next slide, please. Keep on going. There we go. We've got a got an elephant charging at you, and you're armed with a rubber band. Woe is me. I got feeling that way. Was it really worth it what I was doing, trying to care about these things, little things I was doing? And I did some that for some people would sound pretty crazy. I went seven years without a car in D.C. Now, you can't do that here, but you can do that there. It's public transportation. Um, <clears throat> but even that, that takes one car off the road. There, there are millions on the road. <clears throat> so I got to feeling that way, and, and I thought of that rubber band, and I said, well, how many rubber bands do I actually come across? And I decided to be a little bit literal with that. <clears throat> and you know what? If you start looking for rubber bands, they show up everywhere. You end up with a lot of rubber bands. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Probably scared some of you. I'm not going to talk forever here. Some of you may have saw me come in and thought I was, I was packing a lunch, but don't worry. Um, <clears throat> this is a year's worth of rubber bands. It's all rubber bands. I didn't, I didn't fudge it all. There's no baseball under there. I didn't start with a rubber band ball from Office Depot. This was just, if I came across it, I picked up the rubber band. That's about one year's worth. And in the same way, if you're looking for ways to be a better steward of creation, you'll find it. You've got your eyes open. You'll be amazed how many things can, can pop up. Um, let, me, let me introduce you to a couple friends of mine who are taking on a real elephant-sized problem, the one we, we looked at earlier. If you can go to that next slide. <clears throat> the, uh, the man here on the left, his name is Alan Johnson, and he heads up an organization called Christians for the Mountains. And Alan's just a great guy. Um, <clears throat> he introduced me to the man here in the straw hat. His name is Larry Gibson. Now, Larry, just a... An average guy, and in fact, a lot of ways a below average guy. Larry's five foot tall, if that. He's got a fifth grade education. Larry grew up in West Virginia and, um, and went off, worked in the factories of the Midwest, got injured, came back, and uh, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do with his life. His family had a little bit of land there. And he comes back to see that the mountains that he grew up in are being destroyed. Coal companies offering a pretty penny for that little bit of land they had left. They could take it. Just say, not my job. Larry decided, though, that it was his job to save that little piece of land called Caford Mountain and to do all that he could to see that other mountains were saved as well. Well, that didn't go over so well with everybody. What happened was the coal companies just mined around his land on three sides. So Larry's place was a little peninsula of green. 
and the deafening explosions would sometimes send boulders the size of pickup trucks onto Larry's property. Local thugs shot at his house. They killed his dogs. Tried to run him off the road. He stuck with it for decades. And this little man, again, five foot tall, fifth grade education, he ended up speaking all around the world, Ivy League colleges, interviewed on CNN. I met him. That picture we saw was taken when uh, I went out to Caperton Mountain because Larry would host gospel music concerts out there as a way to to raise awareness and, and let people know what was going on. And then just as a way to just show people what what was all around them, what this process was doing to the land. And, th- and that spot where we were at, where the crosses were, that was where an old church was back when Larry was a boy. And he wanted it remembered and he wanted it to be a place where people could go and pray. So it had gotten a little grown up around there. We went and Alan and I went and helped him clean it off. Worked one one hot uh, late August day. And that was the last time I saw Larry. He died of a heart attack just a couple weeks later. He's buried at a family cemetery up there on Caperd Mountain. But he leaves having done his job of stewarding that little piece of creation well. People would often look at the destruction there at Caperd Mountain and they'd say to Larry, you know what, somebody ought to do something about this. And Larry's reply was always the same. Well, you're somebody. And not all of us have a mountain that we can save, but we can do something. If we look for the things to do, they'll show up. They will. Just like those rubber bands that I didn't think I had many of, but I happen to have a lot. We're not on this earth just to do a job that's good enough for government work. We don't want to be the guy who paints the possum. We work for the King of Kings, the creator of heaven and earth, and creation is waiting on tiptoe for us to do our job well. Thank you. Amen.